You'll know when you have a wild woman. She'll practice her craft without boundaries. She is truly autonomous. Her loyalty is only to the family she serves, a midwife who will not allow herself to be held back by a system she didn't create. This podcast is for the birth keepers who want to grow and change. We're open to learning through self-reflection and supportive community. We are creating this space to explore without judgment. We are remembering we were born wild. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Born Wild podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sophia. Leah isn't able to join me today because she's very, very, very sick. Um, So I hope she feels better soon. Uh, But today I have with me Kelly. Um, And is this like third time's a charm, fourth time's a charm? I can't remember. We've been something like that. We made it happen. That's all that matters. (laughs) And played a podcast tag for a while now. But um, yeah, I'll just hand the mic right over to you and let you introduce yourself to our listeners. Amazing. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm Kelly Moore. I live in Colorado with my husband and our nine month old daughter. We also have two dogs. I am the co-founder and CEO of Soulfire Productions. So we produce about 20 podcasts, um, with regular full production. And then we also do strategy and consulting, um, for a variety of shows we've been in business for about four years. Um, my background is in TV. I was a TV host in sports for like 15 years. I played sports. I was a volleyball player at USC, um, and have a background in chronic illness. So I was sick for about 14 years before being properly diagnosed. So it's been a little bit of a wild ride. Um, but I'm here now and love supporting other hosts and bringing their voices to life. Um, and I also co-host our podcast for soul fire called trailblazer, um, and have a show called okay, babe with my husband. I just like laugh hysterically through the whole thing. Oh, good. (laughs) I never know. Some people are like, yeah, I cannot listen to this. And other people think it's the best thing. So glad you enjoyed it. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll make sure to leave links to all those in the show notes. Um, but yeah, let's just start at, there's a couple different ways I want to go, but let's just start at like your beginning. This podcast is about mainly about birth, um, about parenting. Um, but where does that journey start for, for you? Is it, you know, did you dabble in birth work? Was it when you knew you wanted to be a mom or when you found out you were pregnant or where did that journey begin? Yeah, I always wanted to be a mom. I didn't think I would be 35 having my first kid. I thought I'd probably be 25 with a couple kids and um, ended up really focusing on my career and not finding the right person until I met my now husband. Um, And I knew once I met him that I wanted to make all the babies with him. Um, Unfortunately, when I met him, he also told me that he was born without vast deferens. Um, so I knew from basically day one of dating Connor that we were going to have to go the IVF route. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's really when I started to do a lot more research about IVF and alternative methods of getting pregnant and also supporting my body holistically through that process. I'm sort of anti-Western medicine, um, after being sick and misdiagnosed for 14 years. Um, and so I already have a question. Yeah. How did he find out he was born without vast deference? He, um, well, how graphic would you like me to be? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like curious, was this like 
a diagnosis early on? Was it when he was like trying to conceive and mm-hmm. failing or like, yeah, he was about 26 or 27 when he found out we got together when we were like 30 and, um, he realized that when he was ejaculating, he not much was coming out. And he was like, this seems weird. And he had also been a very irresponsible 20 something and was like, I feel like I should have had an oopsie by now. Um, and he never did. And so he went and saw a urologist and that doctor actually had the same issue. And so, um, he diagnosed him pretty quickly. Um, but that doctor also had already had a child through IVF and was like, you'll be fine. You know, it's, it's okay. Um, so yeah, that's how he found out. Okay. Thank you. I was yeah, I, you're welcome. trying to know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so super anti-Western medicine. Um, I am pretty granola. And so going into IVF, I knew obviously that is very Western medicine is very science-based. And so how could I support my body and my experience and the baby, um, with more holistic practices. And then I ended up having a bunch of friends who were postpartum doulas and doulas and midwives. And I just sort of got thrown into the birth world, um, through that. And then we actually used to have a client, um, they host birthing instincts, um, Dr. Stu and, um, midwife bliss, um, is his co-host. And so I learned a ton in listening to them and working with them. And so, yeah, as I kind of went on this journey, I just learned a lot about pregnant, getting pregnant, pregnancy, postpartum, how to advocate for yourself and just kind of dive deep on educating myself in as many ways as I could. When you started IVF, were you pregnant or was there a long journey there? Yeah. So, um, I knew that I didn't have any issues with fertility. And so we were super lucky. We got pregnant on the first try, um, which was such a blessing. IVF was the worst experience ever for me. I really, really struggled with it. And, um, I was very happy to get that positive call because I was like, if I have to do this again and again and again, we had, we have friends that had just gone through, I think their eighth round, um, and ended up getting pregnant. Thank God. But I just, I had heard so many difficult stories and I just really was very grateful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, and then you were saying you're like, you know, anti-Western medicine, but now you have to kind of go this route. How long were, did you feel like you were still in that world or did you step back into home birth? I'm guessing like what, where was, oh girl. Yeah. This story is, this story is extra special for all of you. Um, so with IVF, I think most clinics, this is pretty standard practice. You have to be on hormones until you're 10 weeks pregnant in order to keep the pregnancy. So, and then you kind of come off of those hormones and then you're just in normal pregnancy hormones. So I think it was probably until I would say 20 plus weeks where I felt like I was still on external hormones and not just pregnancy hormones. Um, and so that was really, really tough because it was, you know, IVF sends you into menopause and it makes you have these huge fluctuations and it suppresses things and, um, you know, heightens other things. And so I just, I never felt normal. I felt these aggressive swings all the time. Um, and I was just very uncomfortable and then, um, things got a little better And then we got towards the end of pregnancy and I ended up being in labor for six weeks on and off every day. (laughs) 
Um, so I was having contractions every like one, one and a half minutes, um, for four or five hours every afternoon, early evening. And then they would just stop. And we had planned a unmedicated home birth. I had the midwife, the doula, the whole team. We were really excited about it. We had the tub. It was blown up for God knows how long in our house and really ready. And, you know, I kept going into labor and it kept being like these false calls to the team. And, um, eventually, you know, I, I went into the doctor. Um, my midwife was like, this is weird. I think you should go get checked just to be sure. They kept saying everything looked fine. Baby's heart rate was fine. You know, some women's bodies take longer to warm up. Maybe this is a version of Braxton Hicks and you're just a weirdo. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm just trusting the process. Were um, they, they like checked on baby. Were they like checking dilation or at yeah. all? Yes. So my midwife, um, was doing cervical checks for me. She's a very hands-off midwife. She basically like lets people free birth if they want to, but she's there. And so that's just really her vibe. And so I had to like really coax her into giving me cervical checks, um, which I'm super grateful for. And when she did, she was like, you're four centimeters dilated. And we were four or five weeks, um, before our due date. And she's like, you know, your body's definitely ramping up, but it's very rare for first time moms to have a pregnancy or to have a baby early before the due date. Um, and I just kept feeling like she really, I didn't know it was a girl at the time, but I was like, they really want to come out. Like, I really feel like this baby is trying to come out. Like something feels off and everyone just kept telling me that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so we ended up, um, inducing at 41 and one, it was new year's day. And, um, I did the, the castor oil concoction, thrilling experience. And it did, um, send me into labor. My water ended up breaking. I, I quote unquote labored in the pool, the tub at home with the whole team for about six or seven hours. And then it stalled out again and it stalled out until we got to Tuesday afternoon. And the midwife was like, look, I no longer feel comfortable doing a home birth. Something is off. I don't want to say something is wrong, but your water's been broken for over 48 hours. And now we're looking at infections and just issues that can arise. And I was like, well, I don't feel confident in you doing this to begin with, because it feels like you haven't really known what's been going on for months now. And this doesn't feel good anymore to me. Um, so she was like, I think you should go to the hospital and just check your fluid levels. And then we can go from there. And by the time we got off the phone with her, I just looked at my husband. I was like, I'm not using her anymore. Like, this doesn't feel good. She doesn't feel like she knows what's happening uh, whether it's her fault or not, I don't know. But at the time I'm just like, this is not okay. Yeah, so we go to the confident, whoever you're surrounding yourself with. Yeah. Yeah. And there had been some things throughout pregnancy where I was like, you really just don't seem to know what you're doing. And I feel uncomfortable. Um, so that was frustrating, but we go to the hospital and they're like, you have no fluid left. Um, so they said, baby looks good, but obviously we don't want to prolong this. Um, they, they said, you need to come in and induce tonight. So I go from being the crunchiest, most granola. I'm not going to be in a hospital. I'm doing an unmedicated birth to like, you are now going to the hospital and inducing here's all your Pitocin. And at the time, you know, I had to really come to terms with that. It was very difficult, um, because I'm a very, I'm a huge home birth advocate. I was gung ho about this and don't want all these drugs in my system for me or my kid. And so now I have to basically succumb to this thing for safety. And because what else are you going to do? And 
So I go there and I'm like, I'm not getting an epidural, whatever I do, I'm not doing it. And of course I go into horrific back labor. I've been up for weeks at this point. My body is shaking. I can't hold myself up. I'm in excruciating pain. I have a really high pain tolerance and I was crumbling. And, um, my, the midwife at the hospital, we luckily were at Denver health, which is a midwife run hospital. So it was amazing. Um, they were so incredible. Even all the doulas or all the nurses, some of them were doulas. So I just felt like very supported. And I remember the midwife, um, talking to my husband and the doula and she's just like, I'm concerned for her. She's, she's, she's suffering now. This isn't pain. This is so far beyond. And she's saying no to this epidural. And I am just really worried about her safety and the baby and the trauma that ensues because she can't even like hold herself up. And so they came in and I was really frustrated. I felt like they were all talking behind my back and making plans for me. And, you know, I like go down this whole conversation with myself. And then I finally, I looked at my husband and I was like, I don't want to get this epidural because I don't want you to be disappointed in me and think that I failed us and our child. And he looked at me and he's like, you're the strongest person I've ever met. You have to take care of yourself. Like this isn't okay. And so, you know, we had this bonding moment and I was like, okay, I'm going to get the epidural. So I get the epidural and, oh, by the way, the Pitocin, I'm not fucking doing anything on the Pitocin. Nothing happens. (laughs) And we're like, what is going on? So I get the epidural time passes still no dilation. Um, they come in, they're like, you're a centimeter dilated. I'm like, what do you mean a centimeter? I've been four centimeters dilated for five weeks. And they said, no, you're not. So now we're all like, what's going on? I'm like, does my midwife not know how to do a cervical check? All the questions start rising. So there's like a couple different scenarios where you were and you reverted, which we here can happen. Um, or I've heard sometimes too, where a midwife has checked the outer os and not the inner os, you know? Um, yeah. 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 So we're like, okay, this is questionable. We don't know what's happening, but you know, keep going the course. Um, and so I go through three rounds of teams cause you're in the hospital and they're on seven to sevens. And so finally the third midwife comes in and she's like, I'm going to check you. Um, I think I know what's going on. So she sticks her fingers inside of me and she goes, have you had elite procedure? And I said, yes. And she goes, that's why you've been in labor for six weeks. She goes, you have so much scar tissue. It's not allowing you to dilate. I go, excuse me. She goes, yeah. Do you feel like you're hitting a wall? I said, that's literally how I've been explaining it to everyone for six weeks. I feel like I'm in labor and then I hit a wall. And she's like, cause that's what's happening. You're literally like going to dilate and you hit a wall and then you collapse again. And she goes, what your midwife was feeling was one part of the cervix that was able to dilate, but not the other side. So one side is dilated. The other is not because it can't because it's being held by scar tissue. She goes, I'm going to clear the scar tissue manually and you're going to dilate. And so she clears it immediately five centimeters within 10 seconds. And she's like, you're good to go. And so I think it had just been a few hours. They ended up manually flipping my daughter. Um, that helped a lot. Thank God. And yeah, yeah. And, uh, I pushed for about an hour and a half. They pulled, they brought the epidural down so I could labor in different positions, which was so important to me. Um, my husband got, um, released the scar tissue to when you started pushing. How long was that? 
I think a couple hours. Wow. That's fast. Yeah. It was pretty fast. Um, like finally, <laughs> literally. Yeah. And so she came out, she looked perfect. Everything was great. Um, and then about 20 minutes later, I started to code and they couldn't get my placenta out and they had to have a doctor come in and she just started shredding it out of my body. And, um, I started to lose all of my blood and fluid. Um, they had to rush me back to an emergency, um, at DNR and, um, put a balloon in. I had a, I think a three or four bag. I can't even remember now, uh, tr- blood transfusion. When you um, say code, did they have to resuscitate you? What do you mean by code? No, they were like calling codes. Like she's dying. Like a hemorrhage code. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was hemorrhaging. Okay. Um, I couldn't speak. I couldn't open my eyes. I was like completely white and they were just on their game. Um, did all their work. I was done in about 20 minutes. Um, I had a full near death experience on the operating table and came out and was in recovery and my husband and daughter were there. Um, so yeah, that's my whole story. (laughs) Wow. So different from what you were envisioning. Yes. <laughs> How were you after that? How did you like process it? I went to craniosacral um with my daughter pretty quickly after. Um I knew so I had a really traumatic birth myself. Um with my mom, I had been taken away from her. She I was an emergency C-section, she had staph infection, they took me away. She ended up um like denying breastfeeding me because she didn't want to give me morphine through breast milk. And it was this whole thing. So I had, I had really processed a lot of my birth and my trauma, um, before ever getting pregnant. And my husband knew my whole story. And so I knew how important it was to energetically and emotionally process this for myself and my daughter, um, and to also be reunited with her as fast as possible. So my husband, as soon as he could put the baby back on me, when I got out of surgery, Um, because he didn't want either of us to have, you know, lasting effects of this really traumatic experience. And then I think a week or so, maybe two weeks after she was born, we went to craniosacral therapy together, um, and really worked through a lot of that. And then I had a lot of body work and care done. I did a total, um, birth, like debrief with my birth coach, did a lot of work with my doula. Um, so yeah, I received a ton of help and I'm really glad that I had, gotten into personal development and doing the work on my own before having a baby so that I knew what to do. I knew how to resource myself, um, and to work through it so that it didn't, you know, become part of my story. Um, which is why I tell it rather emotionless now I've won, I've told the story many times at this point, but I also feel very clear from the experience, which feels really good. Um, it doesn't feel, you know, like it has a hold on me in a lot of ways. I I say the same thing about my experiences. I'm like, I can, I can't say it without sadness. Like I'll always be sad about it, but I can say it without crying. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we talk about, we're in the middle of talking about having another kid and I don't know that I want to do that because I almost died already. And what I experienced from the leap procedure and the scar tissue, as well as there's like rising levels of placental issues with IVF mothers. It's actually very common what I went through. And I didn't know that and neither did my midwife to have a placental adhesion or just issues in general where, um, you can hemorrhage or not be able to birth the placenta. It's very common and can also be worse in subsequent births. 
So I'm using that as a resource and as information to make an informed decision moving forward and to also educate other people about it. I think everything happens for a reason. Um, and I don't think people are talking about the elite procedure and the scar tissue problems from any cervical checks um, in any way, procedures, you know, biopsies, whatever, that many of us have gotten, especially in our 20s, that then impact us later in life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised it wasn't a conversation like when you started care. Yeah, me too. <laughs> like, surprised too. Um, what did your like postpartum journey look like? I know you spoke to about the trauma and the recovery. Um, were you able to breastfeed? Um, did you feel like there was any like depression maybe because of your experience? So we did breastfeed. We still are breastfeeding. Um, she's almost 10 months old and I'm so grateful for that. She did have a tongue lip and buckle tie, which was thrilling. So, um, she was gnawing on my nipple for a while. So we got that fixed pretty soon. I think she was seven weeks when she had her release. Um, and that helped amazing. And so we haven't had any issues since. Um, so we were able to feed pretty quickly. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, I didn't experience any postpartum depression or anxiety or anything like that until after her four month sleep regression started. I, she slept really well until then. Um, so I was feeling refreshed in the morning. I was, you know, on a high from these newborn hormones and all the, all the good stuff your body does to survive <laughs> having a newborn. And then she hit her four month regression and I tanked. I was having suicidal thoughts. I was having really dark thoughts, thinking a lot about death. Um, just feeling these really intense swings of hormones. Um, yeah, it was a very low, low for me. And again, I'm just so grateful. I knew exactly what to do. And it was so nice to have a husband who's really aware of him and me and our dynamic, because only a couple days passed where I was being, you know, a raving bee, um, before he was like, Hey, uh, this feels a lot like IVF. And I'm like, Oh, you know what? It does. I feel like a freaking psycho. I feel out of my body. I don't feel grounded. I feel super disconnected. And so I immediately called our birth coach and I was like, Hey, I need a session with you. And so we talked it through and then I reached out to some other friends and just got really good at voicing to my husband. Like I'm okay. And there's this other part of me that's having these thoughts and experiences. Can you hold me? And I just need to share it with you. And he was so amazing at that. And so just him identifying, this doesn't feel like you, this feels like the hormones and what you're experiencing really helped me to process it and feel like I wasn't crazy because I think a huge problem I have, and I hear this with some, so many of my mom friends is that you think you're alone and crazy and it makes it so much worse. And so as soon as I realized, oh, I'm not a nut job, I'm actually experiencing something really hard. Um, it made me feel very seen and taken care of. And I think I was able to, um, support myself quicker than had I not had that conversation. Yeah. And recognizing too, that sometimes it like, it's, it's not you, it's hormonal or, or like sleep deprivation or whatever it is. Having somebody else pointed out to you, you know, to reflect on, because when you're in it, you're just like under the surface of the water and you can't quite yeah. see what's going on. 
Totally. Yeah. And I think sleep, lack of sleep is the worst thing ever for us. And they use it course, as a torture. Don't they? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't know what I'd rather have like waterboarding or not being allowed to sleep. You know, it's, it's really scary and I'm someone that loves sleep. And so having that stripped and also being that tired and dealing with a baby who needs you constantly and trying to regulate yourself so that that baby can regulate it just, it took everything out of me. And I'm just really glad that I knew to ask for help and that I knew I was okay at my core, but that I was having this experience. Um, and then also realizing, you know, everything is temporary and that I could get through it. And it's helped me a lot as, you know, I've been able to sleep more and her regressions have been aggressive. She actually ended up being in the hospital with a tumor. She had to have surgery. Um, we were in the hospital for 10 days at children's in Texas. And so we've had like different things thrown at us. And I think having that experience early on helped me realize that everything is temporary and you will get through it. And it's really important to ask for help, um, and to know that you aren't crazy, um, and just allow people to really take care of you. Yeah. I think we can get caught up, especially when we like want to do things this natural way and, you know, the way we are meant to and believe we can that, um, I, I, there's a way where sometimes you just kind of get thrown into situations where you're either challenged to step up and continue, or you're challenged to be, to be able to recognize when you actually do need additional help, you know, yes. like you're talking about having a sick child, you're talking about needing help, getting pregnant, you're talking about like needing help in labor, you know, it's like, I think this is a big challenge that some women face is like when to hold fast and like hold on to that hope and that belief. And then when to know how to recognize when it's a sign you need extra help, you know, and I don't think any of us really have the answer, but is there a way there where you have like, I know for me, like learning about my intuition versus fear is just like this ongoing thing. I have a medically complex child and just like differentiating. So we don't end up at the hospital every time he gets a cold, but also, you know, not risking his health. Um, have you like toyed with that at all? Cause I, I heard you, we kind of skip this over, but you had some chronic illness too. Um, I don't know if you want to like touch base on that and that healing journey. And just like, I, I think this is such an important topic, this intuition, because it comes into play a lot in birth versus fear, which everyone wants to like throw all their horror stories at you, you know, and like, well, what has that looked like in your life? Yeah. I mean, and a part of that is I didn't want to share the the in-depth details of my birth, because I don't want to project my experience onto other people and have them be in a state of fear because I had a very traumatic experience just because someone else has had something. I think it's important for us to energetically, um, not let that penetrate us and to send us into a spiral of fear. I think that I, really do a good job of holding steady into my truth and knowing what's right for me and how I want to operate because I trust myself at the deepest level. And that's been a lifetime. I'm 35 now. It's been a lifetime of working on how to trust myself, how to hear my own voice. I talk a lot about this idea of discerning other people's voices and their expectations and their standards and my own. And 
I think it's so important for us that as we begin to do this work of honing in on our intuition and what we want and our desires in life and what we feel is best for us and our definition of success and joy and all those things, we have to have honest conversations about what's ours and what's not. So many of us are living by the uh, the voices and the influence of our parents or our teachers or you know whatever your environment looked like. We've never been taught to hone the skill of listening to ourselves. So we don't even know what our own voice sounds like. And I got really good over the last five years before getting pregnant of sitting in silence with myself and learning how to hear me. And when a thought would come in or an old pattern or a reaction would come in, I would say, is this mine? Or is this my mom's? Or is this my dad's? Or is this something that's been ingrained in me by society? And that allowed me to really understand what I sounded like, what I wanted, what was true for me. And so when I got pregnant, I knew that baby was trying to come. She was in the birth canal trying to be born. When I started to go into labor six weeks early, like she was ready. And they said that they were like, yeah, she was ready to come out and she was stuck. And so it it was like further validation that I knew what was true to me. And I knew how to listen to my intuition and to advocate for myself. Um, and so I think it's just really important to sit in that voice, sit in that quiet with ourselves, discern what's ours and what's not, and then test it on small things. You know, you don't have to like make huge life decisions to test out your intuition. You can test it out. What's the um, runaway bride when Julia Roberts tries eggs and decides which eggs she likes for the first time, because she always just told all the men in her life, Oh, well, I like whatever you like. Uh, and she was like, Oh, actually I really like poached eggs, uh, right? That's kind of what it is. It's we kind of cater to everyone else. And until you can get clear and try all the things yourself, try all the eggs and be like, I like that one. That's how we start to practice this and really get good at getting clear on what it is that we like and want and desire. Start with breakfast. Yeah, start with freaking breakfast. It's the most important meal of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so it should be how you really like it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love this conversation um, because a lot of people in our practice will share fears and things like that and that's part of our work is you know where did this fear come from you know did it come from these stories we hear or you know what we see in you know society today um or is it you is it your intuition talking to you Mm -hmm. yeah and I think look like bad things happen all the time look at our world bad things are happening everywhere we turn right now and I'm not going to let myself live from a place of fear because then you are just creating fear. You're creating these scenarios in your life. There's, um, confirmation bias for a reason. It's like, if you want to see it, you will see it. If you want it to happen, you can make it happen. We are powerful beings. And I think the more we can come from a place of self-trust and knowing and being really rooted and anchored in what's true for us and what we desire, I really feel like we can create a reality where that's possible. And I had a pretty bad birth experience and I learned a lot from it. We advocated for ourselves the entire time and I'm okay. And I think that it's really important to know that just because something doesn't go the way you think it's going to doesn't mean you're bad or wrong, or you did something the wrong way. It's how you respond in those moments that I really think speaks volumes about who you are and what's possible. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, up to a point feeling like you're in charge of the decision making, obviously, there's points where, you know, they're calling codes, and you're just along for the ride. But like feeling like you didn't just walk in and get hijacked, you know, that uh, you are making decisions for your care um, can make a difference in how you perceive it. Yeah, you know, and I think, especially women were shamed for asking for what we want and we don't want to put anyone out. And it's like, Oh, just go with the flow. When we walked into the hospital, we were like, Hey, this isn't what we wanted. This is exactly how we wanted it. Can we turn off the monitors, turn off the sounds, bring in our crystal lights and our little twinkly lights and our music and all the things and keep the lights off. And everyone just doesn't need to come in unless you really need to be in here. And they honored every request we had. And because of that, I had the most amazing hospital experience. And if we do have another child, that is the only place I want to give birth because they were so respectful and they really helped us cherish that moment as difficult as it was. They were bringing in the balls and the tubs and the things to hang from the wall. And, you know, they just went above and beyond and covering things with sheets and asking, what do you need? And I, I learned so much about really asking for what you want and need and allowing other people to support you in that experience. It was, it was truly magical. I am so grateful. Yeah, that's beautiful. Cause I know they're, especially the, the families in our practice, obviously they're planning home birth. And so if anyone does end up in the hospital, there can be this fear of now it's all ruined, you know, um, right. or like you were speaking about like that you're a failure or any, any of those terminologies get thrown out a lot, either failure to themselves or to their partner or to their vision of their birth. Um, yeah, it can be a hard transition when you end up in the hospital. Yeah. And I've been, I'm curious your take on this. Actually, I've been sitting with the idea of home birth and I'm still a huge advocate, even though I didn't get to have one myself. I think it's incredible. And, um, I wonder the way our generation has been impacted specifically by Western medicine with procedures like the leap procedure and different scar tissue and birth control and all these things that we've been on, how that impacts home birth moving forward when, you know, I think that there's so many external factors that play into what happens to our bodies later in life. And a lot of people don't even realize the effects until they're being forced into an emergency C-section when really they just needed scar tissue swiped so that they could fully dilate. So I'm just curious, like what the role of home birth is going to be knowing all of these external factors that weren't a thing 40 years ago. It's a really good question because obviously like we can't know it's like chicken or the egg because like you could, there's probably a story out there that is similar to yours where maybe even she did go into labor and had a home birth, you know, or whatever. And it's like, she didn't have the scar tissue removed, you know, or like who knows how it could all unfold. You know, we've had people who go way past their dates, you know, like, you know, to 44, you know, we've, ended care and they are deciding that they're going to like have an unassisted birth and like labor never starts. So they end up going to the hospital and having a C-section. Would it have started in a week? Would it, you know, but like everyone's trying to find their line of what am I comfortable with? Like how long am I comfortable continuing? You know, this on and off prodromal labor, like 
there are stories of that happening and then it and you do go into labor or not or you know you just it's like how to know what direction it's going to go and what your limit is and what's true for you like you know how you were saying you felt like this baby was trying to come over and over again and that helped you move on you know and that like what what midwifery care can look like is knowing when not to cause a problem in the first place that you then like step in to rescue somebody and save the day um, or cause problems, you know, without even being asked. But also when somebody is asking for help, you know, that you can be the midwife who, you know, knows how to do the vaginal exam or knows how to remove scar tissue or all these things that somebody might be asking for support around. Um, I know too, there have, you know, there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, providers who cause trauma that sometimes people are even afraid to have them now, you know, out of this fear of, you know, their birth being taken over. And it's like, yeah, how do we know what direction to go? And and like you were talking about, about the like future of home birth, I mean, talking about positions of babies and posterior position, like when to pathologize something, like when helping that baby navigate is what helps them come. Or when, you know, we've had a baby who was posterior and the labor was an hour and a half, no back labor. The baby just came flying out. And it's like, okay, good thing we didn't pathologize that. But like when to step in so that it is supportive of this woman's experience and this baby being born, you know, like that's, that's the challenge there. When to say like, when a woman's asking for a vaginal exam and we recognize she doesn't really need that. She's just grasping for control and this is going smooth. It doesn't seem helpful. Or when to be like, no, that's what she's asking you for. She really mm -hmm. wants that. You know, it's like, that's my challenge is when to hold that boundary. And then later she's like, thank you for not doing that. I didn't really want that. I was just like, you know, in labor and struggling. Or when it's like, no, 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 I really wanted that. And like, that's what you're here for, for when I need things like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answered your question. Probably yeah. not. No, just... it does. I, I think that the hard thing too for home birth providers um, is that there is so little research done that it relies on word of mouth. Like podcasts like this are so important because if you all and moms like me who have weird one-off experiences, if we don't share these stories, people don't learn. Because it's not like there's a ton of money being thrown into research for home births. So I remember after we had our daughter and I spoke with the midwife and her assistant, she was like, yeah, we got into all these forums and there's a ton of information about IVF patients having a lot of placental issues, very similar to yours, either hemorrhaging or having to have emergency C-sections. Um, so most midwives are no longer taking IVF patients. And I was like, okay, so where was this seven months ago when you said yes to being my provider? Where was this conversation at all? I had never heard that as an IVF patient. So like the clinic's like, by the way, you're going to have a lot of placental issues now. They don't care. It's interesting because like how we're talking about like fear versus intuition stuff. It's like, we have IVF patients and we have yet to see issues with placenta or hemorrhage. So it's like, it's possible that it's yes like someone's on the other spectrum and it's like how to navigate both that information, you know, that it could go either way and like what is true for you and yeah. what the level is on where you want to give birth. And yeah. And I think at the end of the day, it's like, just be edu as educated and resourced as possible. Ask all your questions. 
I bet that what you're able to create and showing up for your patients is probably because you have honed in on your intuition and you're knowing so well that you're able to connect with your, the moms and know like, this is what she's asking for. And that takes a lot of practice and a lot of skills. And I think it's really important to have that relationship with your midwife, with your doula, with your doctor, whether you're having a a planned hospital birth, ask the right questions, advocate for yourself, have a team around you that allows you to feel really supported and held in the entire process. And that way, no matter what happens, whether it's totally on par with your birth plan or completely rogue, you know that you advocated for yourself and had people around you that have your back. I think that's really the most important. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And that we can't ever do it over, you know, cause even if you Ugh. have a baby, Ugh. you're going to be, it's a totally different experience. So mm-hmm. there is no like knowing what would have happened or like what caused what, you know, it's all just our uh, educated guess and speculation. Um, but you just have to like take that information and move forward with it, you know, and what's my next decision that I'm going to make with, with, you know, what I've learned. And, and like you were speaking about, um, saying like, okay, now this is like a fresh start and how am I going to make my decisions? Is it fear-based or is it my knowing? Yes. I love that. You get it, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Because I had to do the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I'll I'll tell you my story someday. (laughs) But yeah, there is, there is a lot of like, it's hard not to let the fear creep in, you know, Mm -hmm. especially when your life and your baby's life are at stake. For me, it wasn't my life, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's an emotional roller coaster Mm -hmm. and for your partner too. Oh gosh, my poor husband. I think this has been harder for him than anybody. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. Yeah, you. We had talked a little bit about like his support for you. Um, Is there anything that you've learned in navigating that on like how, like maybe for women who are struggling to have that support from their partner? Um, Because I know you've done a lot of work in your relationship. Um, Is there any advice you have for people who are trying to like navigate this journey together? in terms of like how to get partner support. Yeah. I think the thing that Connor and I established and kind of forgot about during IVF and then came back to was the fact that we're a team. We're on the same team. We want the same things almost always. We may go about it in a different way because we're really different people, but you know, we have the same core values and we want the same things out of life and we love each other so much. And I think when things get hard, we can forget that and we can make the the other person other and we can separate them from us and say, oh, you must be against me. And we get on the defensive and we feel like we're being attacked and we don't feel understood. And I think the most important thing for us was really open, honest communication about how we were both struggling. You know, I was, I was pretty out of it during the IVF process and he felt like he had lost his wife. And we had just gotten married a month before I started IVF drugs. So he was just like, I felt like I lost you. And I honestly didn't know if you were coming back. And it was really scary. And I remember saying back to him, I feel like I lost myself and I don't know if I'm ever coming back. And so we were both having the same experience just in different ways. And once we had that conversation, we really got back on the same team and we started to really hear each other out and hold space for one another in the struggle and, and what it felt like, and just the emotional process of it all. And so I think 
once we got to the birth experience, you know, we had fights because he was like, I feel like you're faking it. Who's in labor for six weeks. And I'm like, I don't know, like, this is insane. And you know, we had those moments. And then once they were like, well, this is why you're in labor for six weeks. I just looked at him (laughs) and he was like, sorry. I was like, I told you, (laughs) um, you know, we had those moments, but I think for the most part, we just really did a good job of remembering we're on the same team. We want the same thing. We love each other so much. There's going to be hard stuff. There's going to be uncomfortable conversations and just to leave space for that and to do so without judgment. Like we didn't make each other wrong. Even if we didn't agree, it wasn't about right or wrong. It was, Oh, okay. You feel that way. I feel this way. And just let it be. Um, I think that the more you can get on the same page and hear your partner out, even if it feels irrational or doesn't make sense to you, it doesn't have to. Most of us just want to be held and heard and seen through whatever we're going through. And sometimes it helps to just talk it out and then you can move on. But if you don't even have a safe space where you can go, especially at home with your partner, then what? That's when we all start to explode and really tough things happen from there. So I think the more you can establish that before even getting pregnant and during pregnancy, you know, before you're the sleepless nights with a baby and things are real chaotic. Um, I think that, you know, you can set yourself up for success. That reminded me the sleepless nights, um, and about the regression you talked about. Um, I don't know if this was true for you, but, um, when I talk to families about sleep regressions and things like that, Um, I feel like it tends to happen definitely around the four month mark, but it tends to happen at this age where now the baby um, has like a new development in terms of the outside world. Like it's not just all about like breasts and mommy. They're like looking around and exploring. And it's almost like, in my opinion, that they're like too busy to nurse during the day. And so it ends up being this thing. It's almost like a kid in a pool where you're like lunchtime and they're just like, they're like, no, I'm having way too much fun. And then when they finally get out, they're like, I'm starving. And so they like wake up like little newborns throughout the night to get their needs met because they were just like too busy during the day. And sometimes I can see it again when they start like crawling or when you're just like, you have to go into a dark room to feed them because they're just like so easily distracted. Mm -hmm. And then it feels like they're trying to get like all their extra calories met at night um, because they're not just like awake and at the breast nursing, nursing, they're like awake and just like wanting to look around and like be interactive. Um, Was that something that was true for your daughter? Yeah, I feel like she, and I, I mean, I can't compare, I only have one kid, but it feels like she's just going through so many milestones at a time and she's moving so fast. She's nine months and she's almost walking and yeah. And she's talking and she's crawling really, really fast. And, um, she is very much taking in the world. She's just communicating a lot. And so I feel like she has a tough time sleeping because she's just going through things so quickly, um, and just taking everything in. And, um, yeah, so that does make a lot of sense. Like I'll be in a meeting and she'll come into breastfeed and she wants to, you know, talk to the people on the computer. And, um, so Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I've also heard like, there are just some kids who don't want to sleep as much and they want to just be awake and observe and she'll wake up for two hours. She was up for two hours last night from two, like two 30 to four 30, just ready to go. I I, I have a friend who developed a, a temporary heart condition from lack of sleep because her children 
for like, like sleep, sleep consultants will come in for like, you know, four months and then just be like, this is not helpful and it's harmful. And like, I can't help you anymore. Oh, <laughs> just kind of like give it up. But, um, but yeah, it's like, it can be really brutal. And I remember in going through that experience and supporting her and hearing her journey, there's nothing worse than trying to give a sleep deprived mom advice on how to get her baby to sleep. She is like, if mm-hmm. somebody mentions lavender in her bath one more fucking time, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> like, yeah. I can't with the magnesium lotion. I'm like, get out of my face. It doesn't do anything. You are full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, unless I specifically ask you for advice, do not give me any advice about getting my child. Exactly. To sleep. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, Amen. well, thank you so much for coming on. Oh my gosh. I just like took notes on so many different topics we covered. Um, is there any like advice you want to leave listeners with after like sharing all your story? Um, maybe like a first time mom, uh, maybe a first time IVF mom with a lead procedure, you know, anything like yeah. that. Any advice that you'd give like you, you know, when you had first started? Yeah. I mean, I think two things is one, if you have had a leap procedure, just make sure whatever provider you have, you have an extensive conversation. And I think if you are going to do a home birth, just having a really great plan. Um, if you're not dilating, like it doesn't mean you have to be in fear or scared. Oh, Kelly had this experience. So now I'm going to have this experience. That's not why I share what happened. It's just important to have education so that you can make informed decisions, period. Um, And if you did happen to have this thing that you know can have adverse effects, it's always good to have options. And I wish that I had known that that was a thing so that I could have prepared. Um, And I think the other thing is if you are going through IVF, two things. One, make sure you feel a really good connection with your provider Um, We are actually in the middle of transferring our embryos to another um, fertility place because I really don't like where we went. They have great um, success rates, but their bedside manner is trash and they treat you like freaking they're herding sheep. It's just terrible. So transactional. And I know that there's a better way. And so um, I think finding a provider that really hears you and sees you is important. And then also asking for help. You don't have to go this alone. If you do feel like you're crazy or you're melting down or there's something wrong with you, call your best friend, call your therapist, talk to your partner about it. There's nothing wrong with you. It's the hormones. It's part of the process, unfortunately, and you don't have to feel alone or wrong in your experience. Um, So I think, yeah, I think those are my most important key pieces of advice. Thank you. And if anyone wants to reach out to you and connect with you, um, what's some contact info and we'll leave it in the show notes. Yeah. So my Instagram is Kelly T Moore and, um, you can DM me anytime. Um, and then our website is soulfireproductionsco.com. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Hey everyone, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Born Wild podcast. If you enjoy our podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe every week to get the latest one. And please follow us on Instagram at Born Wild Podcast, as well as Facebook. 
You can also write to us at info at bornwildmidwifery.com, as well as our website, bornwildmidwifery.com. And remember, stay wild! wild.